And so I had this very active embodied experience, evidential experience that there was a purpose that lived inside of me. And then that somehow I and the universe were conspiring to make it possible. Hi, beautiful soul. I am beyond thrilled to be bringing you acclaimed author Jeff Brown in our conversation. He's written multiple soul-touching and moving books, sharing his own inner journey and path to his sacred purpose. A couple of them uh, include soul shaping and grounded spirituality, so I highly recommend that you check them out. Born in Toronto, Canada, Jeff did all things he was supposed to do to become successful in the eyes of the world. But then, on the verge of opening a law practice, he heard a little voice inside telling him to stop, just stop. And with great difficulty, he honored this voice and began a heartfelt quest for the truth that lived within him. Although he didn't realize it at the time, he was actually questing for his innate image, the essential being that he came into this lifetime to embody. He was searching for his authentic face. And as a part of this, his journey, Brown surrendered to his confusion and explored many possible paths. The most important thing Brown did, however, was the inner work by going inside and connecting his spirituality with emotional life. He learned essential lessons. And by learning to surrender the to the school of hard knocks, and you will find that he uses a lot of clever uh, little phrases and names like that that he's coined. He found his authentic face and embraced the call to write. And although he resisted it at first, he soon realized that honoring the call was his best defense against sleeplessness. If he wrote, he slept. If he didn't, he lay awake all night. This is the nature of calling. So let's go. Let's take a listen to this amazing, amazing conversation with Jeff. He is dropping truth bombs one after the other, and they will really connect to your heart and soul. I am excited. And I was just thinking right before we started the conversation, Jeff, excited is not even the right word, but that's the best I could come up with. I'm excited and grateful for our time together and being able to talk to you, Jeff. And Great. interestingly enough, we are recording our conversation the night before Thanksgiving here in the Uni United States. So thank you and welcome. You're welcome, Baiba. I'm um... I'm looking forward to talking about um, the path and purpose. I think it's particularly at this moment in our collective experience, it's one of the most important things we can talk about. Perfect, indeed. So I really, really loved your book, Soul Shaping, The Journey of Self-Creation. And you wrote it over a six year period and um, in the middle, as you call it, a tyranny of economic and personal challenges, going back and forth between making a living and your purpose writing. So you've been quite through a lot while connecting with and really discovering and stepping into your own calling. So I wanted to start off with, can you share a little bit more about you and your journey of finding your purpose? Mm. Um. 
I grew up in Canada in a, you know, somewhat tumultuous family environment and with no real idea of what the future would hold. Mostly I was just trying to get through the day. Um, and, but in my adolescent years, I had some glimpses of path, what mm -hmm. I might call true path or sacred purpose or soul scriptures or callings, or you call it whatever you want. But I had a real clear glimpse of a particular criminal lawyer who was quite famous in Canada named Eddie Greenspan, I would see on television. And, and I felt like would look at him and I just he felt familiar to me. And I, I kept saying, I know that man, I'm going to work with that man one day. It's part of my, my life. And it just seemed kind of silly, given the context of how we grew up. Nobody went to law school or medical school or anything like that. But it really felt true for me. Um, and then I also had glimpses of myself as a writer, you know, moments when I would just be writing something and it felt like it was like a portal to presence. It, it was just a particular feeling that came over me and came within me that seemed to suggest that this was somehow part of what I would later call my true path. Um, mm -hmm. And I also would read Abraham Maslow and study humanistic psych and felt like somehow that was part of my directionality also. So I had glimpses of path. Not everybody does. Um, and for whatever reason I did, I have my theories as to why I got those, but I did. And so I kind of held on to those. So as I went through life, trying to survive and get through school and, and deal with the crazy family and, you know, move into my twenties, I, you know, I, I had some notion of directionality that I was striving for. Um, mm -hmm. and that was aligned with those glimpses and, um, and then it just happened to be that, you know, I applied for law school in Canada and got into the various law schools, including U of T, which was a University of Toronto's very hard law school to get into. Um, somehow I got into that. I was sure at the time they'd made a mistake, but phoned and they hadn't. And, um, and then Eddie Greenspan ended up being my, he taught like this evening criminal law class with his brother, Brian, you know, they just told stories basically. And and then I had a conversation with him and, and said, I want a summer job. And he said, we don't have one, but get me a CV. I didn't know what a CV was. And, and then eventually after second year law in Canada, you have a, there's a week where you go and you interview for various articling jobs because you have okay. an apprentice in Canada for a year. So I um, had a bunch of interviews and one of them was at Eddie's office and it wasn't with Eddie, it was with someone else. It was a bad interview. And, mm -hmm. and then just before I was going to accept another offer, I, I got a call, um, the last moment, really, I think I actually, I had accepted another offer and they said, you know, there's two people, we've got it down to two people and Eddie wants to meet you both. So just come on in today. Mm -hmm. And, and just from that moment, I walked into that office with him. I just felt like it had been predestined. It had been predetermined um, that I was supposed to have my experience with Eddie. So, and then I did, I had a radical year of, hundred hour work weeks and did big murder trial, row cross exams, jury address. And so I had this very active embodied experience, evidential experience that there was a purpose that lived inside of me. And then that somehow I and the universe were conspiring to make it possible. Um, mm -hmm. And then after my year with Eddie, I then decided I was ready to become emblazoned on the path of prominent trial lawyer and, and some deeper well inside of me said, that's enough of that. Now you're going to move in another direction. And that's really what soul shaping is about is what my path was after the decision to step away from law to explore the next stage of my true path. See, for me, purpose 
isn't always about one thing. I mean, I, I experience yeah. my, myself like a car on a highway and there's an exit that tells me where I'm going next. And if I listen, eventually I get back on the highway and then the next path and piece of directionality appears. And so, you know, you can have a calling that incorporates all kinds of aspects. It can be very singular, or you can have a number of different callings that arise throughout your life. And, and I think that's what's been happening to me. But but after law, really, it was a psychotherapeutic process. And then the writing, when the moment was right, I'd just done enough work that the call to write emerged. And then it just, it, it for 20 years, it just absolutely wouldn't stop. Um, mm -hmm. And it had so much aliveness and so much truth and so much energy in it that I could withstand the rigors of the bullshit marketplace 40 hours a week in order to get home 10 at night and write until three in the morning for, for the most part for six years, because um, even though it was incredibly difficult, um, I knew that I was moving in the direction that was truest for me. And I really don't, didn't want to live any other way. You know, I didn't just want to be a survivalist. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to move in the direction of a more authentic way of being. Yeah. So that's amazing. And I'm glad that you pointed out, you know, that for you, it, it doesn't need to be singular because sometimes I think we can think that it's one thing right? Our purpose is this one thing yeah. that we have to yeah. discover. So you're saying that it can be several things depending on the timing? Well, I think if you, if you think of the soul mm -hmm. as a multi-aspected or polyphrenic structure, um, and if, the, if, the, if you believe, as I often have and sometimes still do, that we're moving ideally towards something called wholeness, um, mm -hmm then in order to achieve some experience of wholeness, we probably have to embody all kinds of different ways of being, ways of functioning, ways of expressing and bringing all kinds of offerings to the world. So, you know, I think that, um, I think it's fine to focus on finding the next step on true path, mm -hmm. but don't make the assumption that that's necessarily the end of the story. And how, so at one point of time, the law, for that initial period of time felt like the true path for you? It, you know, it, it's, it was so interesting. It's like, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I had this vision that I was gonna work with him. There we were doing this big murder trial together. I would walk with him and feel like it was familiar. Like I, I knew this soul before. I mean, you think about it, being in a criminal trial, murder trial environment, having these kinds of thoughts was already pretty radical. I don't imagine anybody else was having them, but it felt like that. And, but, you know, at some point Eddie said to me, you know, what are you thinking about doing after your articling year? And, and, and he was sort of hinting at my coming back to work with him. And I mm -hmm. remember it was like my soul stepped back and, it, and I heard of this voice. I named the part of me, little Missy, my inner Damon, my, this part of me that oh, yeah. seemed to be directing me towards the path that was truly my path. And Little Missy said, no, she said, you know, the law is done for you. This is the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, and my warrior survivalistic habitual consciousness then went to war with that voice, you know, trying to beat it down, punch it down. And, and on a survivalistic level, it was right. I mean, law was, you know, economically beneficial and immediately egoically, you know, satisfying and all kinds of wonderful things. And I love the law. I, there's beautiful, brilliant work to do in the law. Um, but 
you know, there was this other deeper, quieter, what I call a little voice that knows that just seemed to just have a little bit more um, awareness of mm-hmm. what my direction was. And so then by the time the articles ended, I was already very actively moving in the direction of finding some other way to move through my life. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I had experiences that summer in between before going back to the bar admission course that seemed to suggest that there was a larger canvas or a a different canvas for my life. Um, And so by the time I finished the bar admission course, I was going to sign and do with a bunch of guys and open a practice. And I just I just didn't do it. I just you know couldn't do it. Yeah, it It was done. It was like it was done. It was like. It was as though my soul had been in a courtroom 500 lifetimes before, mm-hmm. and it just had to do this one giant murder trial and, and you know, win awards and get egoically gratified. And then it was like, eh, I don't want to spend the whole incarnation fighting and living vicariously through the defendant and fighting my mother. And I spent my whole childhood fighting for my right, fighting against abuse of power. And it was just like, oh, I'm kind of bored with it now. And I just felt like there was... And, and I felt like being a brilliant criminal lawyer and, and, you know, doing medical jurisprudence, I had a whole vision of what I was going to do in the courtroom. And it's all really valuable work in this world. But I just, I just felt on this deeper level, like I could do more good okay. um, if I moved in some other direction. But I needed a lot of years of the not, in the not knowing and patience in the not knowing and deep inside of the emotional and healing work to reach the stage where I could bring the next part of the calling through. So that's, this is why this is very complicated. It's not all about willfulness. Mm. Some part of the finding of the path has to do with being able to slow down and surrender because both of those things work together for me after many mistakes along the way. And, you know, it's not just about will. It's really important. It's really about learning how to surrender to the bones of your being and listen to the next step next message around directionality and i love that you bring it up surrender and because in our culture it seems like the warrior right is what's so encouraged yeah. and, and rewarded and rewarded yeah. and even even i would say in personal development it's like okay you know what your life will look like if you don't take action if you do don't do something different right if you don't go for it if you don't rise above your familiar feelings you know and all the narrative right that really seemingly feeds kind of that warrior part of us right and can make us feel like we will miss out if we don't so can can we discover or calling can we fast track it or is there a more gentle way to arrive to it well so i think in relation to understanding something about the work you're doing with women in particular i mean i think that it's important to contextualize and 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 define what we're talking about when we talk about uh purpose um through the survivalist lens the way we've defined purpose culturally Purpose is the thing that most effectively puts food on the table, right? And if you can find a purpose that does more than puts food on the table, but actually makes you affluent, then you have found a worthy purpose. And in the survivalist world, it does serve you to stay active, focused, punch your way through, 
in the doggy dog marketplace. So that's one version of purpose. I, I didn't want that, that version. <laughs> huh? I would call that more of a job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but for me, I wasn't wanting, even though my childhood set me up for wanting nothing more than a survivalist idea of purpose, mm -hmm. on some deeper cellular level, I wanted to know who I really was in relation to purpose. Why was I really here? What was encoded in me? Because I had those glimpses of some other pathways of possibility. Mm -hmm. So my struggle, I mean, if I had been if I didn't have this other annoying part that keeps pulling me beyond survivalism, mm -hmm. I would have just become a prominent trial lawyer and done all kinds of wonderful things and made a fortune and could have retired by now. Um, but this other part kept saying, you know, there's more to this life than just survival and a survivalistically defined purpose. Right. So that's why soul scripture, sacred purpose, I began to understand, you know, I was very moved by the fact that sociologist Virginia Satir, who did brilliant work just before she died, she is said to have said to Jean Houston, the humanistic psychologist, I did what I came here to do. And for me, what she's talking about was not about just being an effective survivalist. Right. She's saying she figured out what she was really here to do. And I think if we can get everybody to understand this thing called sacred purpose and really take their value and their offering seriously and find that thing or those things as they unfold, we will be living in a remarkably different world than the world that we're living in because survivalism begets survivalism. And ultimately you destroy the planet, you destroy the species because there's no realm, no, no element of authenticity. So we have to move it. We have to cross this bridge, mm -hmm. but, I crossed the bridge at a time when nobody I knew was talking about this. So you have to hold the marketplace. You have to take care of the bottom line. You have to make a living. And then you have to also create space and time and solitude to explore who the hell you really are, um, which means you're basically living in a two full-time job reality. Right. And, and that's what I did forever and ever and ever and ever. And a lot of people stop because they either don't have the energy um, or they don't have the drive to really arrive. They're not willing to fight for their right to the light to find their true path. So they just stay in a survivalist reality and then imagine that one day when they retire, they'll find out who they are if there's anything left of them. But I, I kind of wanted to do that earlier. So how long did it take you? To? Uh, to arrive so, to the call, like the, your sacred calling of writing, right? Because right. in your book, it seems like it was quite a battle, right? It was quite yeah. challenging. It wasn't an easy, no. easy road. No, it wasn't. It, no, but I, I, I'm kind of, I grew up with the rough and tumble, so I didn't have any other expectation set. Um, I, I mean, I, I left law. I was called to the bar around thirty, and let's say calling was the next big step in my path I 30 2001 I was 38 so I spent eight years exploring reality suffering growing learning I mean let me just say my definition of sacred purpose and this is something that is often not discussed certainly in Americana where purpose is this pumped up Tony Robbins-esque thing mm -hmm. for me I spent six or eight years healing emotionally and growing through the resolution of traumatic materials so for me, sacred purpose at this stage of human development for many people isn't about finding that great thing they're going to bring to the world. It's about dealing with their individual ancestral and collective trauma. That's also sacred purpose because that's wherever there's growth, there's purpose. And for most of us, that's where we're stuck. 
right? But if you're so bumped up with all this unresolved material that you don't have the energy to find your next step, you, you can't, you don't have clarity because there's no space inside to get directionality. So for me, when I did a lot of somatic psych, breath work, bioenergetics, release phases, at the end of those release experiences, I would get more glimpses as to the next step on my path because now the space opened up inside of me. So if you're trying to find your authentic purpose without doing healing work, you're going to have a real hard time doing that. So what is the benefit to like, you're talking about inner work, right? And the power of inner work to really connect with your sacred purpose, you know, your calling, because when I'm, you know, there's a longing, I think there, I see and hear and feel a lot of longing that's out there for really that, that real thing, right? The fulfillment where people like women are in jobs and they're successful. They might have 10 plus years of successful corporate careers, right? Uh, but then they're busy, you know, they're accomplished, but then there's that voice inside, right? Of something missing, some sort of ache. Well, I call it a truth ache. Mm-hmm. Because if you believe as I do, that we everybody has some encoded purpose or mm-hmm. pathway of possibility, that they're here to live, explore, walk, embody, you manifest. Mm-hmm. Then if you're not walk, if you're not gonna walk, if you're not walking it, you're going to experience a truth ache. Truth aches can come in many forms, agitation, frustration, depression, addiction, all mm-hmm. kinds of indicators of your malaise or your dissociation or alienation from your truest path. Then when you find the things that are your truest path, it doesn't mean they're easy, but the truth aches fade away. And then you might get something we could call a truth chill, which is that feeling you have when you're spoken the truth, found your truth, are living your truth. And even though it's difficult, it feeds and nourishes you and it becomes like a buffer against the madness of the world because you're like lost inside of say a creative process if your calling is a creative process. So Mm -hmm. you experience reality in a very, very different way. Most people are wandering through life in a truth ached state. I mean, that's just their state of being. Well, because the culture has been survivalistic. So, you know, they thought they were really smart. They finally found a way to make a great living and uh, Mm -hmm. calm down their anxiety about being homeless and living in a bus shelter one day. But meanwhile, they're like, but I got all these gifts and callings and offerings in me and I don't even know what to do with them. Right. So we, we want to create a marketplace that is really flowing from the well of true path rather than a marketplace that's only organized around survivalism and materialism because that's what we've got right now and how so how does one start like if you have no clue right yeah yeah but let's say you've got no clue but you know there's something it's better something for you. missing yeah. yeah well i think the first thing to do is go into a body-centered psychotherapy and start clearing your emotional debris that's blocking your access to who you really are that's important. Start so having some Can you talk a little more about like body centered. Well, there, I mean, there's a number of them, say bioenergetics, core mm-hmm. energetics, somatic experiencing. I mean, some, I mean, talk therapy is fine if it's a good, but eventually you often get, start to feel like talk therapy has its limits mm-hmm. and you need to get into the body and discharge all the emotional material that you're holding and the armor that you've had to build to deal with a survivalist marketplace. So you want to de-armor 
-hmm. You want to clear emotional debris. You want to do what I call armor buster practices, which is anything that discharges your holding so you can feel, you know, that wonderful feeling you have when you like clear emotional debris, you have a great yeah. cry and you feel like you're really present. So you want to keep having that experience because presence and purpose become inextricably linked. Presence is a portal to purpose and purpose to presence. So if you're not present, that is you're emotionally fragmented, you're split up, you're armored, you're carrying all kinds of anger, you haven't released all this other material. In some way or another, you're not really present. You're not really here. You may be present from a survivalistic perspective, which just means showing up with your sales face and doing the job. But if we're talking about the real presence, where you're really in your body and you're right here with me right now, that's the place you want to get in order to get access to the information your bones are holding as to what your real purpose is. If you're all bunked up and blocked up and fractured and fragmented, you don't even know what your purpose is, or you have a glimpse, but you can't actualize it. So, and once you start to find purpose, whatever form it is, like when I would get lost in the writing process in a real clear and clean way, that became my particular portal back to being present, right? So you imagine the sculptor who was sculpting, who was born to sculpt, and then he, you, if you were to watch him, it would be like he's sculpting light because that's his particular path back into a deep experience of presence. And eventually presence and purpose become indistinguishable. They become the same thing. But most of us have to start with doing the work to get more present, not Eckhart Tolle in dissociated presence, not bypassing spirituality present, but really in the body, in your feet, in the tissues, really here, bright eyed and bushy tailed, and then your purpose will begin to reveal itself. I love that you bring it up and you talk a lot about it also in your books. So can we, right now it's super popular is meditation. Yeah, well, meditation for a lot of people is medication. Yeah, it's just another, I mean, you know, meditation can be helpful. But if you think meditation is enough to clear all that detritus, all that emotional debris, all that armor, forget about it. It's a, it's, it's patri it's a patriarchal spiritual construct. It's a patriarchal spiritual obsession because they don't want to go anywhere near the shadow. They don't want to go anywhere near their pain body. They don't want to go near anywhere near their suffering and their debris, but they want to convince themselves that they're mastering the awakening field. It's called, I call it masturbation and grounded spirituality. So, you know, so they're like wit wit inside of their brains, witness, observing, watching their sen sensations for whatever it's, it's fine, but really you need like a more active, I have an enrealment meditation that's on my Facebook page. Osho had a dynamic meditation. I don't, I love parts of it and not other parts of it. You need to discharge your holdings to get here. Forget the monkey mind. The monkey mind is a symptom of the monkey heart. The, the mind that just keeps going that you think you're going to cure by watching it, watching it inside of your little meditation chamber for 27 hours a day. It's not the answer. The answer is clear the emotional debris and your monkey mind will calm down. So this is, it's really more the direction of the feminine that I'm encouraging traditionally than the direction of the dissociated masculine. You know, and that really kind of when I was reading your work, it really, sometimes you, I mean, this is, I think where you're doing such a service, like, so much, <coughs> you know, I was reading your books and your work and it's kind of like, you need somebody 
first of all, you write so beautifully and you definitely have a gift, but you know, you kind of need somebody else to say it, to validate yeah. your own experience. And what was my experience with meditation was that, um, you know, I would go, right, do the practice just to come back in the world and be rattled, right, by the stresses, by the meetings, you know, still the difficult sometimes interactions and clients. And it's like kind of like it just felt like so like this disconnect, right? You have to go in more and withdraw to come back, but it's not like super long lasting. Mm -hmm. um, so what are I, I know you mentioned some things on your, you know, what you offer the in real med meditation and then also. So obviously where people can work with a psychotherapist or body-centered uh, psychotherapist or bioenergetics, but what is something that's super accessible, you know, that somebody can start doing on their own? So for example, something, there's something called holotropic breathwork, but there's many forms of breathwork. So to engage in an activated breathwork practice that invites you to energize through the breath, your body and excavate emotional holdings mm -hmm. and discharge those holdings. So mm -hmm. you can, there's all kinds of people doing it online and you can get all kinds of um, um, DVDs that are related to various breathwork practices. So that's a very activated way to do it. Um, mm -hmm. You can also look into bioenergetics. I mean, one of the things that it's the most basic practice, I have a foam cube, you can use a mattress and I have a baseball bat. And so let's say I'm holding anger, which most people in a survivalist world are right. holding 300,000 pounds of anger. So, which gets misplaced in the forms of, you know, passive aggression, all the rest of it. So, you know, develop a practice of noticing when you're angry, don't judge it. I mean, it's justified if you're feeling it and discharging it, hitting the foam cube, hitting the mattress, using a bat, taking pictures that you photocopy of people you're angry at, putting them on something and whacking them so you don't whack the person. Um, I have a film called Carmageddon. There's a movie trailer, my main trailer for it. If people check that out, Carmageddon the movie, they can see me hitting a foam cube. Um, so that's a very simple way that's not normalized in the culture because we've yeah. we've desacralized anger. We've mocked anger. We've changed we're we are and we're controlled by not being allowed to be angry. The, the, the first thing the most of the male gurus taught people was no gossiping, no judgment, no anger. That way they could get away with anything, right? So you want to be able to activate your anger, move your anger, clear that debris, and then come back to a feeling of freshness of appreciation. If the goal of meditation, because you can meditate just to calm, center, detach when you need to, it's fine. But if the ultimate goal is to come back to this thing they call freshness of appreciation, a sense of wonder, you're probably better off doing that through the discharging of your emotional holdings than sitting still like a rock on a mm -hmm. meditation cushion. And, and if you think the way I think of it is like I, I it's about people for me. So I worked with Alexander Lowen, who in his 90s was working with me. He was the uh, co-founder of Bioenergetics. He was a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed guy who would do discharging and tantruming every day to release the stuff, not just from his childhood, but from the culture itself. He was alive, so I would not I would encounter Al, and I would, in smart and in his feet, and I was like, that feels awakened to me. Mm -hmm. And then I would watch Eckhart Tolle, who was considered to be a so-called enlightened master, 
and there was no energy coming off of him physically. He talked like a flatline robot, like somebody who'd been meditating 16 hours a day. And when you do that, you can convince yourself you're not fucked up anymore because you're no longer energized enough to access your shadow. Mm. Whereas Lowen was like, we're all got shadow. Of course we are all carrying shadow. So let's enliven it and discharge it so we can really get here. Mm. And so those are two very different ways of understanding healing transformation. And for me, if I just sat like a dead stone on a meditation cushion 16 hours a day, I personally would never access my purpose. Mm. Put me in a room with Al and going over a breathing stool, discharging, hitting, kicking, tantruming. At the end of it, I had lots of glimpses of my path and my purpose because now I had space inside and I had the energy now in my body to meet the manifestation of my purpose. Wow. That's amazing. And so what you're saying is, and is that, do you have to- Purpose is not a, purpose is not, sorry. Purpose is, I just want to say, purpose is not a cerebral construct. Purpose Mm -hmm. is a felt experience. It's like a whole, like a way of being. It's in your body. Yeah, yeah, but you, the the answer you could spend, you know, when you spend three thousand years in your head trying to figure out if you should marry that person, I what know. your job should be, again, and you, and, and it, it's, it gets you nowhere because you're just looping, right? No, right. so this is not a cerebral construct; it's a felt experience, and that's our problem. The culture is keeping us head tripping out of our bodies, away from our feelings. That's how we're controlled. That's how we survive by our wits in the culture. The problem is until we drop down there, we have no idea why we're here because we have no idea who we are. So purpose is a felt experience. And I think that's going back to what you're saying when you were, you know, in the lost stage of your life, you felt it, right? It was in my body. Right. And that's kind of you. So my truth ache was an embodied experience. It wasn't a notion of something. It was a feeling. Mm-hmm. It was like, I love law. I want to be the next Eddie Greenspan. I'm ready. I got so much to do. And then my body would just, eh, eh. it was like my, yeah, it's a felt yeah. experience. Yeah. And, and the, throughout, like, did it take you years for the writing to kind of the little messy or your voice of intuition, whatever you want to call it is um, to kind of, when did the writing bubble up? Yeah. Yeah. So this is why timing with, I think I said in soul shaping something like if you step on the right path at the wrong time, you've stepped on the wrong path. So yeah. because I, I knew writing was encoded because I had had glimpses. So I would go like with these garbage bags filled with all these notes I'd made and sit in a hotel in Montreal or New York and just like I'm going to write my book. But I couldn't because I wasn't ready. I wasn't emotionally ready. I wasn't ready to write about the things with the depth that I write about. I hadn't lived enough. I hadn't suffered enough. I hadn't learned enough. So, you know, and it's okay to say, you know what? I think that's part of my path, but I'm not ready for that part of the path. I need to work another part of my path and purpose and the emotional healing or getting your economic life in order, whatever you need to do structurally or foundationally so that you can calm down and move to the next stage. Your purpose is totally fine. Wherever there's growth, there's purpose. So, you know, it's okay if you stepped on the right path at the wrong time. It's the wrong path for that moment. It doesn't mean it's going to be the wrong path at a different stage of your life. And you have to learn how to understand the nuances, especially in a survivalist world that is not supporting this kind of conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You really have to learn how to understand the nuances of who you are and of what you need 
to reach the stage where you can really give over to that next stage of purpose. I, I, I couldn't have written soul shaping two years before. I had to go through a love experience that shattered me and opened me and transformed me. So when I sat down to write, I had more to say. I was ready to write. And I was calm enough inside because I discharged enough stuff in the healing at a place called Harpen Hot Springs that by the time I reached the end of that two weeks of discharging, I was centered, calm, clear, and ready to write. Um, if I did it five minutes before that, it wouldn't have worked out. Mm. So you got to get to know yourself. And that's yeah. culturally not something that's encouraged. And the body work, right? All the work, the discharge and, you know, what you're talking and healing and inner work, is it, does it apply only to people who've had traumatic childhoods or, you know, some sort of trauma or, you know, um, well, well, I mean, I, I mean, my view at this stage of human development is that everybody's a trauma survivor. Okay. Small T, big T, whatever T, whatever okay. you want. But if we're talking about comparing the state of most humans to what I might consider to be an actualized, authentic, purpose-driven being, almost nobody is there just because culturally, collectively, in terms of our conditioning, our ancestral material, our individual trauma and disappointments, there's always some work to be done, but not everybody has to do 20 years of that work. I mean, it really depends on who you are and where you're at. And the soul plays some role. I mean... I had a conversation today with one of the most brilliant people on the planet, Andrew Harvey, and we were talking about we had these really difficult childhoods and difficult mothers, but yet we found our way to be get emblazoned on these paths, whereas many other people who didn't even have it that bad haven't found their path. So how do you explain that that mm -hmm. fire, that drive to arrive that some of us have to overcome? And, and I think the soul has something to do with it. The soul has a mission um, it, it was very clear I was going to work with Eddie. That was in my soul. That wasn't in my head. You know, it was a felt. My body said, yeah, I know that guy. I'll work with that guy one day. And I was, you know, I was a 14-year-old survivalist. I was never thinking this way, but I knew this. Um, and when I sat down to write, it was in me. And I knew I had to get to the place where I could really do that. And so why somebody is so hungry that they'll work 40 hour work weeks to get home and work another 20 alone in a room with their cat. I don't know exactly, but I think the soul wants to be on fire and some mm -hmm. of our souls already are on fire and you want to, you know, believe in that enough to give energy to it so that it can begin to catapult and cascade so that you now have the energy you need to find and honor your past. Wow. And the energy, would you say that it was released once you were at a point of having done enough of that inner work and releasing? Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel like you don't reach a point where you're ever done with that, but mm -hmm. I, I knew that I had reached a point where I was, I was just done enough with me that I was ready to bring an offering. Um, mm -hmm. And I've continued to learn and grow and realize how little I know throughout the whole process. But, right. but you know, you, you, and there's nothing wrong with spending your whole life identifying your purpose as your healing, because for many people, from many family lineages, this work is extraordinary pioneering work that is transforming human consciousness away from only a survival of self-definition to a more authentic one. The healing work is the bridge. The healing work is the real spiritual practice. So I don't want to ever trivialize that and say, well, you do that 
you know, people, they contact me, I do session work and they go, how many healing sessions do I need to do before I can do my purpose? I go, dude, your healing work is your purpose. So just, let's just be with that and let's send you to the right person to work with. And I assure you, if you do it for long enough, deeply, truly, and thoroughly enough, some other offering will probably arise in the heart of that. I love that. So maybe a part, like if you, if somebody feels that they don't know their purpose right now, this healing, right? This inner work. Sure. Clear the debris. I mean, what's first question to ask is what's in the way? What's preventing me from accessing that information? Mm -hmm. It could be emotional blocks. It mm -hmm. could be financial, structural things that are worrying them and they can't calm down enough to think about the things we're talking about, which is very real for a lot of people in this world. Um, so it can be that. It can be emotional. It can be structural, economic, foundational stuff that's in the way. It can be self-concept stuff. If it can be that they don't believe they have anything to offer because they were beaten down verbally and emotionally and all the rest of it. There's so many things that get in the way mm -hmm. of us being able to say, I have a purpose and finding that purpose. And, you know, you, you have to make a very real commitment, long-term commitment to this as your life not as like a vacation, mm -hmm. not as a five day workshop. I mean, this is ridiculous. It's I mean, this is, workshop. yeah, it's fine to do things, you know, that support your process, but don't ever imagine you're not going to go do a Tony Robbins thing and figure out who you are. It just doesn't work like that. Like this is a very, um, it's a very sacred and private process in many ways. And mm -hmm. you have to develop a relationship with your experience of the self in order to be able to identify your path and then to see your path through. It's very, it's very personal in many ways. It doesn't mean you can't invite relationship into it because that's all part of purpose and path, who you learn with, who you don't more learn with, all those things. Mm -hmm. But really, it's really about, I think all those years between lawyer and writer, a lot of time was spent before I went actively seeking out experiences because you also have to have adventures and experiences that give you feedback as to who you are and who you thought you were and who you really are and why you're really here and why you were wrong about why you thought you were here. I call those depth charges or adventures in soul shaping in the book. Mm -hmm. But also for me, lying on the couch, learning how to not move because I was so active, I was moving so quickly to survive, learning how to just slow down, breathe in my body, get to know what it felt like just to be inside of my body was an essential part of the process of finding who I was in this lifetime. If I hadn't, if I just kept moving about, moving about, moving about without slowing down, surrendering to the bones, listening, developing that inner relationship on all those inner pathways, it wouldn't have been enough. I mean, mm. path of purpose is like an art form. It's a dance between willfulness and surrender. And you have to figure out when you need to go out there and get information and energize and when you need to just come back down inside and integrate that information and find new information in those quiet places how do you know when you, you gotta get you gotta get to know yourself i mean yeah. you, i mean you know it's purpose i think is a very individuated thing so how are you going to find out what your individuated unique purpose is you need to develop a relationship with this individuated unique being and you have to, I call it solitude and soul shaping. You need to spend time getting to know yourself and doing the things you need to do to transform what you experience as the self. And, you know, I mean, this is why they, 
the pumped up Americana version of purpose is sort of useless. I mean, all they're, you know, it's fine if you want to be a survivalist and figure out how you're going to make a living and take care of your family, you have to. But if you really want to know why you're here, you're going to have to go in all kinds of directions you didn't expect, which includes learning how to lie down on the couch, breathing into your body, feeling the terrain that is you, learning what you're holding, learning what's in the way, feeling uncomfortable, not getting up and getting ice cream, lying there and feeling it. I mean, you've got to really get inside of these bones and live inside of these bones if you want to access your direction in this lifetime. I mean, it's ironic, right? Because we think of directionality as a mobile action, like a movement, mm -hmm. that so much of it has to happen with stillness and silence. And not so much of it that you become an automaton, but enough of it that you get to know who you are. Mm -hmm. And do you need, so how, that means that you need time with yourself? Yeah, solitude, you, gotta, you need to create space and time. Now, fortunately, because this, journey was such a priority for my soul, I had a lot of, I created a reality where I had a lot of space and time for myself, but not everyone has it. So it's, it's a more, you know, they're locked in, they got 3000 kids, they got a whole, you know, so right. you have to, you have to find a way to create space for yourself. I mean, even if you just go get a massage, massage helped me a lot because it cleared a lot of the armor. I, it gave me more access to who I was because of all the armor that I was carrying and even just to go in the massage table and just be with yourself inside of that process, if you can, can be very helpful. Journaling, maybe? Sure. Great. Right. Whatever. Absolutely. Whatever, you know, I, whatever it is that allows you access to something other than your adaptations, disguises, and defenses, which is how most of us are moving through life. We're adapted, we're disguised, we're defended, we're masked, we're, we've got the sales face, we got whatever we need to do to survive, we need to do it. But you want to have an experience of something called the self that has nothing to do with societal constructs. And to do that, you have to just, you know, and at first it can be very difficult because some people have never done it. Um, I was going to ask you, why is it so, because like, why is it so difficult to actually First of all, breathe. I love that you were talking about breathing, yeah, right? Just start right there. Mm -hmm. We hold our breath shallow and then yeah, right. any of those uncomfortable emotions, then we go get a brownie, coffee, right? Stimulate ourselves. Shove it down, push it down, well, and push it down. So shallow. No, no. Well, this is how we live, is what we call life. Shallow breath, shallow life, deep breath, deep life. So a lot of us shallowed our breath because if we shallowed our breath, we didn't have to feel our trauma or the discomfort of our childhood or the unmet needs or the difficult narcissistic father or the unavailable mother or whatever it was. So we armored our body. This is why body psychology is so important. These aren't just cerebral defenses, they're bodily defenses. Mm -hmm. So the, you watch, uh, some people have their heads pulled way far away from their bodies. They live in their minds, survive by their wits but they're not in their bodies. So they have to find a way to come back down into the body through somatic practices. Mm -hmm. Breath is the same thing once you energize. So when I went over the breathing stool out, they have a breathing stool in bioenergetics. It's like a pommel horse that you go backwards over. And he would go, breathe boy, breathe boy, you cry, cry, you know? And I realized in that experience that I could not even breathe fully into my lungs, but, but my waking consciousness had no understanding of that. And when he pushed me to go farther in open up the lungs more, breathe more, I started to have, I felt nauseous, 
I had felt resistance, but I also had all kinds of memory emerged in that experience. Uh, I remembered things from childhood that I did not know a thing about anymore in my waking consciousness. So you got to open the body to find out what you're holding and to find out who the hell you really are. And at some point along that way, then you start to get enough space inside to ask the next question, which is why am I here? You know, mm-hmm. Not just why am I here to survive, we, of course, but the next thing, which is crossing the bridge towards the authentic self. The deepening of the breath is a big part of that process. Mm-hmm. Because you, so what I'm hearing is you can't really even connect to your purpose if you're not connected. If you're not present. You if without presence, there's no purpose. Right. That's how I would yeah. say it. Without presence, there's no purpose. Or, or without presence, there's a limited, limited access to purpose. Right. So, so the more, for me, the first step in my journey was trying to get more present, more cleared out, more in my body, more fully here, more integrated, less fragmented, my parts coming together rather than being in this part of my personality, that part of my personality, because, and the more I was able to get aligned and integrated, the more access I had to purpose and the more energy I had to meet the purpose because I was more integrated. There was more solidity. Therefore, there was more energy. So mm-hmm. I think for most of us, we need to start with pre- presence. But the patriarchal spiritual bypass world has been for their own economic reasons, trying to lead us to this dissociated bullshit version of presence where we think we're all masterful and awakened, but we're not even alive in our body. Like they call it non, there's a whole non-duality. They call it Advaita, I call it Avoida because mm-hmm. all they're doing, it's self-avoidant realization. They're not realizing anything. They're just avoiding because you can't call it non-duality or unity consciousness or all or wholeness or what Philip Shepard brilliantly calls radical wholeness in his work. If you're not in contact with your unresolved emotional material, if you've bashed the ego, you've bashed your personal identifications, you're not even really Baiba, um, you know, every, and you're not in your body. So how the hell can you claim you're in a unity consciousness experience? If you're like an automaton, like Eckhart Tolle, that's not wholeness. Wholeness has energy coming off it. That's wholeness. Mm. Yeah, and that's what we we go through day day to day. We're busy, the nine to five, providing for our families, getting breakfast, you know, lunch, survival, dinners, and then but the end by the end of the day, we're just like we don't even know how we felt at any. It just like becomes all a blur, and at the end of the day. You're snapping at your kids. You're just drained. So for people who are living in that life, which is many people, they have to make a determined decision to prioritize the connection, reconnection with the self. They have to, um, or, you know, delay it for as many years as you have to, till the kids are gone. I mean, this is what happens with people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have kids, so I didn't have to worry about it. I just had to deal with my crazy family and surviving economically, that was enough for me. And I couldn't have spent all that time inside of a book process if I had to deal with the raising of children. I know that. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was important for my soul to make that choice because that was what called me. And and it was not an easy decision because I'm naturally naturally parentalistic. Um, Mm -hmm. Though it turns out now I feel like I have 5 million kids, but you know, I mean, (laughs) just, on a real, like on a moment to moment level, that experience that my friends are having of having to attend to the needy child persistently and all the rest of that, 
it's very difficult to surrender to the next stage. So you have to find a way to create space for yourself so you can explore what these what purpose means for you. And you also talked about um, that if you spend too long of a time in the survival purpose, right? On the one that's economically practical and, you know, um, you know, and it might be the known profession, right? You have 10 or whatever years and uh, that at some point of time, you, I, I'm using the wrong words, but it will be harder and harder to connect with your purpose. Well, I just think that like, if you spend decades mm -hmm. inside of the armor of a survivalist life and you don't have practices that keep bringing you back to a more subtle or authentic experience of yourself, then at some point it becomes very difficult and, you know, illness can become an issue. I mean, if you keep living off path, you're more likely probably to get sicker, younger than if you find your true path. I mean, there's a whole medicinal benefit to mm -hmm. sacred purpose that doesn't happen often in a survivalist structure. So mm -hmm. it, there's a lot of reasons why you want to create space to do this, but, and you don't, you want to get away from it. I, I know I talked about that at the end of soul shaping, which is probably what you're talking about. You know, this whole idea that you're going to, you know, reach a certain age and then, and some people do, and then they go and just explore what they really wanted to do. They wanted yeah. to study history, they study history, whatever it is. But for a lot of people, there's not that much left of them because they, and they haven't cultivated an experience of the authentic self. So it's a little harder when you're older to cultivate that experience sometimes yeah. than it is to start when you're younger, if you can. If and you sometimes can. you see it on, on people's faces, right? The vibrancy. Yeah. Is right. Gone, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, they've, 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 They've had to put away all kinds of beautiful, luminous parts of themselves mm -hmm. in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I start with conscious adaptation, conscious armoring, learn the difference between armoring up to go to work mm -hmm. and then coming home and taking your armor off. So you start to know there's two realities. There's the survival reality and then there's an authentic. Reality. And then eventually what happens when you get enough into that, it all starts to become authenticity. So even my sales face became much more less edgy less smart savvy and sharp mm -hmm. and more heart-centered relational and authentic so and yeah. then and you would be surprised to find sometimes you can make just as good a living that way you don't have to put on that sales face and you know it these are things you have to explore and experiment with and if somebody doesn't have like, okay, they're committed to finding the true calling, right? They're committed to starting doing some practices and already are probably, you know, many women are on the way, right? They're doing yoga. They are, you know, doing some sort of spiritual, emotional, you know, uh, self-development work. But if you're not getting like kind of for you, like these whispers for writing, um, if you don't like, what do you do? Do you just try things? And yeah, I mean, I call off? those depth depth charges in soul okay. shaping. I mean, yeah, not everything is happening passively. So you go out and sign up for courses. You explore things you're curious about. You do things that are the opposite of what you think you are. So sometimes that's really helpful. Um, I call it the habitual range of emotion. You have a very certain range of functioning and feeling and and so expand you know date people in a different way than you dated other people 
uh, take a course in something you absolutely don't think is you. I mean, do whatever you have to do. And over time, if you do enough of that, you will get some clarity as to your directionality, you know? And I think it's also important to say, purpose doesn't have to be magnanimous, gigantic, and the becoming of Oprah Winfrey. Your purpose, I knew somebody whose purpose really was to feed the birds on Toronto Island and found so many levels of healing, satisfaction, and directionality in that experience. So, you know, get away from the pumped up version of purpose and and make it a subtle, private, and personal thing and um, take the heat off it. I mean, it's enormous to find a purpose in a completely distracted culture um, mm-hmm. without having to tell yourself that you have to become the next Tony Robbins. I mean, God forbid you become the next Tony Robbins. That wouldn't be a good thing anyway for anybody, including Tony Robbins. But, you know, I think it's important to just let go of the the story we've been told about purpose is a marketed construct now, like spirituality is just mm-hmm. fuck that. Like just finding your path is huge. Finding your path, whatever your path is, and wherever there's growth, there's purpose. If you're growing through that experience, then you have found sacred purpose. Mm. And can it be easy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I have a, I've had a lot of real easy days with this. It starts to, you know, it, everyone's is different. Some people's is like really intense and active and chiseling and chiseling and chiseling and chiseling like like the count of monte cristo when he was put in that jail and had to dig his way out i feel like that sometimes and at other times it feels really fluid and wonderful like this is easy right now this is part of my purpose to talk to you and this doesn't feel difficult it feels comfortable and um you have cool glasses and and so yes it can be it can and for some people i mean i don't think anybody has been it lives without trauma in this world i just don't believe it right. compared to my vision of human possibility at least um but i do think for some people it's simpler they knew at an early age they were going to be a violinist they're called to the violin they find presence there presence portals to purpose they're living fantastic life like that sure it can happen but in a survivalist world where we've been malconditioned it doesn't happen that often yeah, it seems more rare than the norm. It is rare. Oh, it's rare. It's rare. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And one of the things that you talk about is visibility, right? Like when you had your own inner battle, right? Who am I to write this book? Who am I to write about my experience, right? Who cares? And and really kind of, I think you tied it back also to your comfort, you know, how comfortable were you with visibility or not, right? Or how safe was it to be visible? Can you talk yeah. more about visibility and really um, needing to, I guess, heal things around visibility if we want to step into our calling fully? Yeah, well, depending on what the calling is, but because mine required a certain amount of public revealing and a public interface, I had to interface with the self-concept parts of me. Mm-hmm. The one part was the part that as I was writing soul shaping, which was kind of like writing my diary. Um, it was like, who, you know, my self-concept said, who cares about your story? It's of no value to anyone. So I had to keep punching through that, you know, letting, letting the light of the calling take up more space. And that voice eventually faded out. And now I don't hear that voice anymore. Mm-hmm. The public visibility part, which is similar but different at first you know i 
I remember feeling uncomfortable when I would hear people talking about my book, like in a yoga class, not knowing I was in the room. Even that level of public revealing was uncomfortable for me. I was anticipating, you know, I, I associated visibility with disappointment and attack from childhood. So I assumed if I became visible, I would be destroyed. And and then found over and over again that that just, you know, experientially, you have to have a new experience. You have to let yourself have the experience and found out that that was mostly not the truth. Um, so now I associate public visibility. It's changed a little bit because of my political piece, uh, writing more about politics. But before that, like with this stuff, I, I just started to feel really super comfortable and healed the childhood part of me that associated visibility with attack. You know, mm -hmm. I couldn't just heal that in a therapist room. I had to have an experience of a different reality to heal that too. So it was really stepping into the arena. You got to do it. You got to, you got to go for it. Yeah. yeah. But you got to do it in bites that you can handle and integrate because mm -hmm. if someone has terror, then they don't want to mm -hmm. jump to the, so a lot of people go, I don't want to write my book because I'm afraid I'll become famous. I go, look, just <laughs> write the book first. Okay. Well, and and it's because there's it's because they're so sure they'll be destroyed, right? So I could just just write the book, and then we'll decide the next piece in the next piece. I don't think you have to worry in your delusion. It's not a it's not really a delusion of grandeur. It's more like a delusion of dander. I call it like it's the assumption of like there's, you know that that you're not okay, and that that you're if you suddenly the book goes crazy, you're going to have to deal with being you know all the haters and all the all that, and you know it like I. Like when I started to write, so put soul shipping out into the world, I got very few attack emails and that's good because I, I would have had a hard time absorbing it. I was still real sensitive around bringing my voice to the world. But then I reached a stage where I could write like grounded spirituality, where I'm attacking patriarchal spirituality. And now I have thousands of hate emails and I don't give a shit about mm -hmm. it in the beginning right. that that would have stopped me in the beginning. But I did that when I was ready to do it. So now it's fine. Right, because that's pretty, yeah, you have to have level of conviction and every, you know, certain. And you have to be resilient and you have to develop the, to the place where you've been, you know, gotten enough bullshit emails that you just don't take them seriously anymore. It's just experience. Like, it's like, oh God, that's him. That's not me. That's her. That's not me. At mm -hmm. first, because of my trauma history, I couldn't do that. Like every hateful email was me. I took it personally even though it was someone I didn't even know writing me an email. I mean, we all go through this in the internet. It's real easy to write hateful things to strangers. It's not as easy to say it to them when you walk into them in a restaurant. So, you know, yeah. after a while, when you get public, it's just most 99% of it just goes in one ear and out the other, but it takes time. You have to move at a pace that your trauma history can absorb. It's really important on the path of purpose. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm just also looking at time, Jeff, and I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, and um, before we wrap up, if I can ask you a couple more questions. Okay. And one of them is, I actually learned about you through um, a lady in my um, professional network and uh, a soul sister, if you will, who shared your name and some of your... Um, quotes and it really resonated and that's how I actually bought your books you know started reading them and then reached out to you and here we are having this conversation and she asked uh, her name is Nina and she asked me to ask you you know is there ever can there ever be too much self 
investigation and yeah. dwelling on your own feelings. Yeah, I, I mean, you have to decide for yourself by getting to know yourself mm -hmm. when you're spending too much time inside of that process and not enough in the relational process or in the calmer plateaued integration process or just in the enjoying of your ice cream process. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I see the, the, the challenge with this is it's hard to, we have to be careful because the whole, you know, new cage perpetual positivity movement is really about denying victimhood and saying people are pondering their navel for too long. And most of those people are saying that because they themselves are avoiding their issues. So it's, it could, it's true that sometimes somebody can spend too much time inside of that process, mm -hmm. but it's important that they decide that and not mm -hmm. that any of us else, any of the rest of us decide that. And sure. I know, I know people who've been stuck. I don't find it as much with body centered people who are working right. somatic psych, but in talk therapy, yeah, you'd like Woody Allen sitting for 15 years in a room talking about the same thing. Sure. Excessive analysis perpetuates emotional paralysis. So mm -hmm. if you're too head trippy forever, you may never, you may just die like that. I mean, if you, if you drop down into the body and really do the work, I think you'll find you'll move to, to a more joyous way of being, depending on how much trauma you have eventually. And you'll not need to spend as much time working within the self because you'll be a little bit more done with the self, at least for mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. And you probably will know, right? You will feel it, right? You just feel it. You're just, your energy will shift to some other point of focus or purpose or directionality, or you'll start doing the offering, you know, the calling some, I write because it, it my calling demands that I write. So it's for me. But I also like that it helps people when it helps them as an offering. And what happens is I do believe, I think it was Ram Dass had a quote, uh, you, you have to become something before you become nothing. nothing. And when you become nothing, you become everything. So the last part of it's a bit bypassy, but the first part I liked because the way I construed it was you have to sort of do things to build the self and build a healthy ego. And, and then eventually you reach a point where you're just like not, you're not there with that. You're now really more in the universal or more in the relational or more in the bringing of the energy of what you've learned outward to the world because we are relational beings. And, and then I think it, there's more relief then because you're, you don't feel self-obsessed. Sometimes right. you have to be, but you don't want to stay there forever. Right. That's don't stay there forever. Uh, and then uh, what do you say? So since it came up, I wanted to ask you, how about this? You know, there's some teachings that teach that it's kind of if you felt a certain way, right? It's because if you felt it for 10 years and longer, right? Uh, felt and thought it, right? It's become wired in your neurochemistry. So you sure. kind of have to switch to a better, higher vibe, right? State, emotion to start wiring a new feeling, a new reality. So I'm not into higher vibe. I think that's a patriarchal dissociated bullshit notion. Um, I think a deeper vibe, a truer vibe, a more integrated, inclusive vibe. Sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're in, a, in that kind of a habitual groove or rut of mm -hmm. feeling and thinking forever, but, you know, a lot of times what those modalities are doing are like CBT or they're trying to get you to change your thinking to change. I really, again, prefer to work from the bottom up rather than the top down. So 
I just have found that more effective. You know, it's mm -hmm. if CBT worked for me, changed my thinking, and then I'll rewire my feelings, I would do it, but it just doesn't work. So, you yeah. know, I, I prefer to really get inside the body and try to regroove the way that I'm functioning. And I have consistently found that it changes the way that I think when I can do that work bravely. Mm -hmm. I love that. And thank you for sharing, you know, your experience and, um, it gets those ideas or that way of approaching it, because I can say from my perspective, um, also just trying to process it in the meditations and through your mind, there's something missing, you know, it's not real. Yeah. It's called, it's called your body. It's <laughs> like, hello. It's like, we, we're giving the mind, you know, the mind is a very wonderfully, wonderful functional tool when it's doing my soul's bidding. Mm -hmm. But when it's running the entire show, that doesn't feel like any kind of a life. So, yeah. you know, we live in a disembodied world. And until we embody ourselves, we're not going to live complete lives. And we're not going to fix what's wrong with the way we're functioning in this world. Because so much of it is because we're fragmented and dissociated. And the culture, the economic culture, the marketing culture the soul liberty movement, the spiritual movement, the religious movement, all of it is about getting us as far away as possible from how we really feel in our bones so that we can be contained and controlled for their purposes. So the ultimate liberation of humanity mm -hmm. comes through the re-embodiment journey. I love that. And so even, even kind of the opening your heart, right? Opening yeah. yourself up, you can't think your way to it. Mm. It's really get in your body. So Jeff, how can people find you? And all the beautiful work and Thank wisdom you. that you share. Uh, JeffBrown.co is my primary website now. It's the, I do some courses on Soul Shaping Institute. My download courses are on JeffBrown.co. And then there's links off to Facebook and Instagram. And I'm developing a new uh, teaching model. I'm trying to, I'm working on that just now, hoping to bring that to the world in the new year. So I may have another website that relates to that methodology that will arrive. But JeffBrown.co is the simplest. Thank you so much. Thank you, Baiba. You do good work. Thank you, Jeff. The Jeff's layers of wisdom and realness resonate as deeply with you as they did with me. Here are my top takeaways. Purpose isn't always about one thing. You can experience it as being on a highway. If you think about just taking the next right exit. So surrender and listen to your next message and what comes to you. If you believe that on your way of uncovering your purpose, you're moving towards wholeness, you have to embody all different kinds of ways of being and offerings to bring to this world. Also, uncovering your purpose can at times feel like you're having two full-time jobs. One, making a living, and then making time to explore who you really are and what is your soul's sacred calling. Another one, if you're not walking and humanifesting, I love this term that he's coined uh, among many brilliant terms that Jeff has coined. Um, so if you're not walking and humanifesting your true path and purpose, you most likely will feel a truthache kind of feeling deep down inside that something is missing. Here's another gem. Presence is a portal to purpose and they are inext 
inextricably linked. And wherever there's growth, there's purpose. So your purpose isn't a cerebral thing. It's not a, a thought. It's a felt experience. And a disclaimer to add that none of this is meant as medical advice. Jeff is sharing his experience and the truth and wisdom that he's come to through his life's journey. And if you need help, please seek medical professional advice. If you enjoyed this conversation, first of all, check out Jeff Brown's books. They are amazing. And also share this conversation with somebody that you know isn't completely fulfilled in their job and feels like something is missing. Uh, and I invite you to subscribe to You Bring the Magic podcast for more upcoming awesome interviews uh, and uncovering how you can build a more fulfilling career and life where you can truly fall in love with Mondays. Lots of love.